What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you for tuning in to uh, another episode of the Live Free Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Mike Maxwell. I wonder if that sounded a little more entertaining. I've noticed that uh, these these intros, I, I sound like I'm almost bored. But there's, there's something strange about talking to yourself. or I, It's almost as if I'm talking to the computer or this little silver microphone in front of me. So it's, I sound kind of melancholy in these openings. Um, and then all of a sudden I'm super animated in these interviews that I do. And I have no idea how it sounds when I come out, when, or when, when I come out, when these fucking words come out of my mouth. So, you know, just bear with it. This week's guest, or one of this week's guests, is the talented Miss Kelly Bennett. Um, she's a writer and musician. Uh, we had been having some discussions on Twitter about um, San Diego art and issues surrounding those things, and it turned out that I had uh, seen her perform before we had even started talking, and I didn't put the two and two together until I saw some photos that uh, my friends Rebecca and Kevin Jolson did of of her and the group, and I recognized them. And finally put two and two together that I had seen her play with Joel P. West in the Tree Ring, which is her group. And I got they put on one of the most entertaining concerts I've ever been to. Um, one that I, I really, really enjoyed myself. And then, so it was kind of funny that we, we connected and, and were, at least that I connected two dots and realized that, that two separate stories were coming from the same people so after we we tried to get together and sit down for a a chat for a few weeks and just our schedules kept conflicting then we had the holidays and all that bullshit but we finally found uh an hour and a half hour and 20 to uh sit down and and discuss the topics that we have been discussing on twitter in 140 characters which was clearly not enough to uh, have a decent conversation so we talk about uh, Canada, violins, Joshua Bell in the subway, creative frequency, the artist model, uh, artist mo- art, ugh, just cut that one, fuck it. Covering visual art, the rise of the art critic, and the role of the art critic. I just can't even read my own writing these days. Uh, that must mean I'm getting old, I guess. I think the opening song is going to be old and in the way, so it's fitting. Um, we talk about Robert Pincus from the Union Tribune, um, San Diego art versus uh, Mexican art, currency fallacy, the housing bubble, real estate nerds, questioning everything, pricing art, turn of the century, not this one, the AHA video, uh, the tree ring, MCASD, getting in the zone, vibrato, pancake hand, and voice of San Diego. And I figured out how to put Vimeo videos onto the blog, which all you motherfuckers should go check out. Um, For each guest, I I create a little blog, which if you go look at it before you listen to the podcast, it doesn't really make sense. But as you go and listen to all the stories, the the pictures in the blog will then make sense and, uh, and give you a little insight as to what's going on in my weird head and my guests' much more entertaining brains. So, with all that said, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Kelly Bennett. Um, part of like my background work is an abstract process. Okay. So, like um, the drips and some of the right. sort of random colors that, like, there's a piece behind me 
that is halfway through. So you can kind of see there's just an abstraction of color. And then once the figurative form gets in there, it'll look much less that way. But the process is the same. Yeah. Which I get a lot of I, I get a lot of pleasure out of it. And I've I've considered just doing a straight abstract painting. Mm. Like I I just did a portrait of um, Stanley Kubrick. Mm -hmm. uh, that the background, like I knew the portrait that would fit in there perfectly, but I was like, man, I really like the background. I kind of wanted to just show it like this and mm -hmm. just leave it, but I couldn't pull the trigger on it. Now, if you did that, would you, um, would you tell people that it was like, how much of that story of the portrait that you had in your mind as you were making that and going through that process to make that backdrop? Uh huh would you share if you put it up as an abstract piece? Uh, none of it. Yeah. None of it. And I've even considered uh, creating a whole new persona, like a whole new alter ego to present this work. And it's funny, I, I was talking... Max Michael. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I could do all... I, I've had alter egos in the past, so it wouldn't be that far of a stretch. Um, but it would be more of like a goof. If, you okay. know, like it wouldn't be as serious, but I mean, it, it's still like the painting process is the reward, regardless. So, you know, it doesn't really matter. But um, let's officially start this thing. Thank sure. you for coming up and sure. doing the show. So I have a little cheat sheet too. Do you have a cheat sheet? I do. We're gonna kind of back and forth interview. Yeah. Uh, let's um, let's preface this thing by by mentioning that um, this is the first time we met. I think everybody. I think almost everybody else who's done the show so far, I've known for a significant amount of time, uh, and it's funny that we have been communicating via Twitter back and forth uh, in 140 characters, of trying to talk about art, and it really doesn't. It doesn't work, right? Not at all. But so a, a lot of the people I've known for a long time, so like it, I know a lot of stories about their life. So this, I, I, I'm happy to have this podcast be a little bit different. But I think it'll still be kind of the same get-to-know-you stuff. Because even with having, like, people who I've known a really long time, there is a difference with, like, sitting down and, and really getting to know about somebody's life and, yeah. like, like learning maybe about their family and what that what that means to, to know the person that I would, like, say so I've known someone 20 years or, or, or something close to that. And then learning these new stories, like, I see them in a totally different light. And I did, these podcasts are meant to sort of, have people sit down and have a conversation about something that maybe we typically don't have a lot of time to do, right? Or we're in a bar, or it's loud, or it's like you're in a party or something, mm -hmm. and you're only going to talk for seven minutes, and then yeah. move on to whatever's next. Well, let's um, let's figure out how we got to here. Um, were you born in San Diego? I was born in Victoria, B.C., in Canada. Canadian? Or I was born in, in Alberta, but I moved to Victoria when I was little, so I'm Canadian, also American. Um, my dad was American when I was born, so I was able to get dual citizenship, uh, which I didn't do until I graduated from college, but I went to college in San Diego. Okay. Um, so, dual citizenship and have been living in San Diego for about eight years. What were your parents like? Um, I think they're the best. They are, they're both pretty irreverent people, but they live... Uh, fairly reverent lives. So my dad's a minister, uh, mm -hmm. and my mom's a teacher, and they... You say mom? Yes. I like that. That's an East Coast thing, too. <laughs> yeah, and I say a boat, and I say a boat, a boat and I say 
process and progress and things like that. Fantastic. Project sometimes. I say all kinds of weird shit. <laughs> well, it's especially different, <laughs> different from any <laughs> for any reason. Yeah, any geographical location. There's a bunch of stuff that I say too that isn't Canadian. <laughs> yeah. That is just random stuff that I have come to think is the right pronunciation. So, um, so they're great, and um, I'm the oldest of four kids, and I my brother is a um, makes hip hop music. Um, so he's a white Canadian kid making hip hop music, which Sweet. is pretty awesome. We just had a pretty normal and uh thing. you are a musician mm-hmm. you play the violin um, have you been doing that your whole life so it's three and is was the creative process um instilled in you guys from via your parents it was it definitely was they have both been but when I started playing violin, I'm three, you know, I'm not thinking like, okay, how can I express myself <laughs> yeah, in a right. different mode? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, how can I play Twinkle Twinkle? But that with that point is interesting, I think, to talk about because um, it's said quite a bit how how often we, we cr- are creative as children mm-hmm. up until like the adolescence and then we get into school and we have to start being like less interested in these like creative aspects of life yeah but it's those people who who found something in it maybe at that early age that are like that kept a hold of it and continue to do it into their adult lives one of the most gripping things that i've ever read uh was this actually this piece of journalism a few years ago by a guy called gene weingarten at the washington post and he wrote he had this sociological experiment idea where he took Joshua Bell, who's a violin like prodigy and performer. He's one of the best violinists in the world. Yeah. Into the subway, you might have seen this video. He went into the or the metro. Yeah, I have. Uh-huh. And they basically put a ball cap on him, and he was wearing a t-shirt or something, and he plays these amazing pieces. And people are just breezing past. It's seven thirty in the morning or something. It's L'Enfant Plaza. Mm-hmm. It's DC rush hour, you know, it's like get to work, haven't had breakfast yet, whatever. Yeah. And one of the most amazing images from that story was this three-year-old straining to see, like walking past and hearing the music and straining to see this performance. And the mom, after like afterward, they had all these Washington Post reporters scattered all over the metro station to catch people as they would come out and yeah. be like, was there anything interesting about your commute today? Yeah. And they would all be like, no, it was fine, you know, or like there was this annoying girl on my train or whatever. <laughs> and then they would say, was, did you hear anything interesting when you got to this station? And they, you know, they would all kind of, this one, uh, when they finally, when this reporter finally told this mom, you know, well, did you notice the violinist playing? She said, oh yeah, I had to step between my three-year-old and the line of sight to this violinist so that we could keep going. Yeah. And I was yeah. just thinking, like, she's got to be kicking herself now that she cut off this kid's natural inclination. But yeah. what about being three makes you that much more attuned to what's happening? I mean, A, your mom's going to take care of you. You don't need breakfast. Like, you know, things are being taken care of well, for you. Here, here's what, what the, where I think it's coming from, is that creative types have time to sit and think without thinking about all the strenuous day-to-day life lifestyle type of bullshit right that clutters our minds on a daily basis however people who are creating sit down and give their mind a chance to just be open because you're thinking about your craft 
and it turns into like a meditation to where mm-hmm. you just shut shut down a lot of those extra sensory things that are going on. And I think that for children, it's probably the same thing because they're not worried about paying bills. They don't know what what money is. They they don't have those same anxieties that a lot of this modern day societies are faced with. Yeah, and so they can sit down and it's almost like they they're able to get in tune with things faster hmm. maybe because of that lack of of extra nonsense it's like all the satellites flying around the earth you yeah. know they don't have all that around flying around their heads it's really interesting i see it too when i um i mean most often the only time that little kids are seeing me play is if i'm playing at like a wedding or something uh-huh. so i'll be playing for a wedding and usually i'll play for 15 or 20 minutes or so when people are sitting down and it always happens that if there's kids that are usually six or, or younger, they like walk, they just sort of like walk toward me. Yeah. <laughs> it's really weird and it's yeah. really interesting. And they're transfixed by what's happening. And I'm playing like simple little garden music stuff, you know, mm-hmm. but their parents might be talking or catching up with somebody that they haven't seen in a while yeah. or something. And they're just like, Hang on a second. There's there's a violinist. Yeah, which is makes me feel a little. Well, even you know, even as an adult now, like I'll stop if somebody's playing an instrument on the street, like a hobo with the with their guitar case out to get changed. Like even if I don't have any money to give, which is typically the case, if I I I, I tend to give what I can if, in opportunities like that or like occasions. But I'm not, like I'll stop and listen just to catch yeah. a couple of those things. And I don't know, it's almost like an appreciation, but I think it's more like keeping that creative frequency open and and uh, allowing that information or that energy or whatever that whatever that sound is that, that gives us that pleasure, that's those pleasure centers or whatever, like is just allowing yourself to be open to those things. And yes. I think there's something too about, like I was at <clears throat> Balboa Park and I saw this kid playing oboe and he was okay, you know? <sighs> He was fine. Yeah. He he was squeaking, and you can't. You've got to spend a long time getting yeah. good at that instrument. But just to stand there and recognize, like, just to listen for a minute. Hopefully, I mean, I don't want to put too much uh, credit toward me just standing there and looking. But hopefully, that's like, oh, I stopped somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, because I was trying to express myself or trying to be creative or trying to play this instrument. Right. Which I think is important to foster, and I do too. We um, I actually brought up that topic with Mr. Seth Coombs, um, talking about art, maybe music, um, saying how like even people who aren't as good as others, or maybe somebody who's clearly not um, at the level of somebody else, that it's still important to encourage those people to to move forward and, and try to grow and get better, like. Maybe some people won't and they'll get stuck in a rut, which a lot of people do, and you, you reach a plateau or whatever. But I, uh, anybody who's making things and is getting something personal out of it, that like I always want to try to encourage it. And even if it's something shitty, like I know that there, I'll be able to find something in it that is valuable to me and is valuable to the person making it. Do you think the interesting thing that comes out about that, though is that there's this model for artistic success that is like, get your stuff in a gallery, get your stuff in a show, get a journalist to come and write about you, 
um, have somebody want to buy it. Is there a way that that can be circumvented or something so yeah. that these people yes, can I live still... that. Um, although I've put a lot of effort into doing those things because that is like that, like, okay, here's start and here's the start line. Here's the finish line. This yeah. is the goal. I've never made that a part of my process. So I've always lived by the motto that if you do the work, everything else will come like field of dream style. Right. So as long as I sit here and focus on the important part of creating these pieces and getting what I want from it and making it totally personal and just allowing what happens after that to be a natural process, all those things fall into place. Because if you're doing the work and putting it out there and being honest with yourself and, and the people who you're, you're sharing information with, then the journalists are going to come to you and write about you. Uh, the galleries are going to hit up your website and send you an email and say, hey, we want to put you in this show. Like those things are going to happen. Now there is a very distinct difference between, say, doing that process and like what I think you're trying to get at it in going, okay, I'm going to be this famous artist. I'm going to do this show, then I'm going to do this show, and then I'm going to blow up, like sort of like the Mr. Brainwash or the uh, idea, like, like in music, of like making it. I'm going to get a label and I'm going to yeah. be playing big stadiums or whatever. Yeah. whatever that There's something is. sort of jaded in that, but it's, it's like, you know, it's almost like we're, we're bred to, to buy into that right from the get go. Because like you go ask any schoolyard kid, what do you, what do you, do you want to be a millionaire when you grow up? Yeah, I want to be rich. I want to get all these things. And so like what we see around us is that, oh, here's what these people did and went and got rich. I want to do that. But, so it's easy to fall into that line. Yeah, but it's but the other question too is talent. Which is a really hard thing to wrap your mind around. And you know, for me as a as a writer, and I'm only very recently covering art. I've been covering for four years housing, economics, mortgage fraud, that kind of stuff. Uh -huh. So now I'm covering art and creativity and what it means to make you know, theater and classical music and visual art in San yeah. Diego. And there is a question of talent when you're talking about, like, you're able to make something and get a personal fulfillment from it, and yet you're talented and you do have these things and you do know that these things are going to fall into place. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, you can almost see when somebody contacts you know, when somebody sends, like to Seth, which is a great example, somebody sends Seth their demo, they're really hoping he loves it. Yeah. But the likelihood for Seth particularly is that he's not going to like it. Yeah. You know, and right. he's going to, and he's going to rip into it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that, and I've had, you know, there have been people that I've played with that he's ripped into and that's just the way that it goes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I like Seth and I think he's great, but yeah. I think... But I think there's this question of talent and that, that we, like, by this journalistic model, which I'm really interested in because I'm starting to get my bearings on this whole process. Yeah. Um, which I kind of am, too, with this podcasting, like, yeah. doing interviews and, and learning how to do it, right? Yeah. And picking up little things that are like, okay, here's where I need to do this I thing. need to make a transition or something. Yeah. yeah. It's like, like music, right? When you know yeah. you have to, like, change a chord or, yeah, like... totally. Yeah. So th the question that I have is... Uh, do we, in a sort of pluralistic age, not to get way too philosophical, that's not what I mean, but Go ahead, we can do, that. do we want 
uh, to have a critic be sort of a gatekeeper for a, a county's art and culture, a region's art and culture. Do we want, do like what, cre what credence does a journalist or a journalistic outlet have? Because what I'm interested in is humans creating. Yeah. Like humans have to make something because just by very nature of being. Well, you want to, do you want to know my opinion? I, I got do. an answer to that. I want to know your opinion. Um, I think the critic's role is, is simply, I, I understand for you coming from a, a writing standpoint or somebody like Seth, that there's a, a creative process on your own in formulating all these words into this interesting sort of story that, that tells uh, a good picture or paints a good picture of, 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 of something in a very short amount of time, you know, in a very set number of words. I think that the role of the journalist is basically to get people talking because what as artists, we need, we need people talking to one another about the work. Right, and I've noticed a, a big, what I've perceived as as one of my early issues in in getting my work out to the masses, was that a lot of people knew about my work, but not enough people were talking to one another to let each other know that they knew about the work, which is very important to make those intertwining connections. So, you could have a group of fans. That, or God, fans is such a douchey word. You could have a group of people that are interested in the work that you make, yeah. and have them running parallel with a whole nother group of people that are running in the same line that are also interested in the work you make. And if you can get a people from the people from one line to talk to the people in the other line, it it creates a bigger bond and a and a bigger interest in the work. And what seemingly becomes uh, it it gives the work a strange value for some reason and that's kind of how the art world works is that if enough people are talking to one another about you and telling enough other people about you then it builds your your sort your persona you know so so then where does criticism in the sort of traditional sense of it you know where a newspaper hires a critic like i'm not a critic yeah i write stories about the people who are making art in San Diego, sort of describing what I can about the sound that they make or the, the um, production that they put on or the painting that they've made or something. Yeah. But generally, my point and my effort is to paint pictures of these people using words because we all live here and it's important that we know what else is going on in our neighborhoods and in our county um, from an artistic level. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not going to shows and writing a critique of the art that's been made and like, I wish that he would have sanded the edges a little bit more mm -hmm. or I wish that this message wouldn't have been so didactic or I wish right. whatever, you know? Right. And so, but I, I haven't fully formed my idea of where a critic does fit. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like you try to keep your opinion out of it? I think I try to keep a very um, strongly worded conclusion of worth or merit out of it. Uh -huh. But my, uh, you can't. But let me ask you this, okay? With that said, do you do you critique it in your head? Well, here's here's where the real criticism probably comes in. It's yeah. like criticism by omission. 
I only have so much time, and I'm only going to write about the things that I see that I think are worth writing about, which largely is going to mean that the stuff that I cover is stuff that has so intrigued me by the story behind it, or is of such a quality in my personal opinion, because I don't believe, you know, journalism is all about objectivity and all this, but I, yeah. but I don't really believe that we can actually look at something objectively. So it's probably true that if I see something that I absolutely detest, I'm not going to write about it. Yeah. And that's maybe Which a form of criticism a, in itself. But then, then there's a fine line between maybe somebody who's doing um, a more journalistic story and somebody who's actually being a critic, a right. public critic, in terms of somebody who wants to influence public opinion as to what's good and what's bad. Where somebody uh, who's... I, and I, I have no idea if these definitions are would be like labeling terms that you put on, but it seems like more of a journalistic idea would be just to promote the things that you enjoy. And I don't even, I, yeah, I don't even necessarily think about it as promotion, although I know that that's what it is. You know, yeah, from, from the yeah. artist's perspective, yeah. if I write a story about them, that's good promotion for them, right. you know? Yeah. Um, or even sharing your opinion or, or But or just telling a story about, like, I'm likely to go to an art show of a friend. Right? Because mm -hmm. they're my friend. Right. And right. I know about them, and I know that they've been making stuff for six months, and it's of a completely different vein than they've been making stuff before, and I'm intrigued, and I want to go. And and some of, on a very basic level, some of what I'm hoping to do is give people that little piece of thread to hang on to, to go check something out that they've never heard about before, but, oh, I live in Crest. Or like, oh, I live in North Park, and this new, that weird storefront that I just saw have those things in it is <laughs> yeah. like in my neighborhood I should walk down there on Saturday or whatever right. you know and so to a certain extent that's completely different from what a traditional newspaper critic does because a traditional newspaper critic often is talking to somebody who's okay do I want to go to the MCSD show do I want to go to this thing do I want to go to that museum and like already has that inclination and already knows about neoclassical movements and, you know, right, already right. knows about these sort of, and not, and, and not at all to say that a critic can't be educational and illuminating something in the way that I'm talking about. But but maybe and, that's a problem in San Diego, though, that I've, I've kind of seen, is that we have this focus on MCA, MCASD downtown in La Jolla, like our only major institution, which did some amazing stuff this summer. We can give a shout out to them. My Thursday night thing, fucking kick its ass. But, <laughs> but and the Viva show was was really good. But there's there's not a lot of focus on galleries, hmm. um, and especially like galleries that are showing young, up and coming, and sort of newly established artists. You know, that's really interesting. So. I need help understanding how an artist, a critic, and a gallery, like how that all works together. Because I've heard it described that if somebody, like Bob Pincus, right, the region's sort of foremost art critic, um, if Bob Pincus reviews a show that you have up at a gallery, then you can take that and you know, let's assume it's a favorable review. Uh -huh. Then you can take that review. Which just happened. We, we, right, okay. So, but like, for for an emerging artist, uh -huh. um, 
for somebody who who's never had that before, he comes and he writes a review. Then you can take that review because it's Bob Pincus, because you know when he was at the UT, it's the UT because he writes for Art in America, and that is way more marketable to a gallery than just you sending your work on its own. Now, is that overstating it? Yeah. Okay. I think it helps. It's that idea that okay, other people are talking about other people. But but specifically, somebody with like. This, you know, sure, with clout. Long, yeah, clout and credentials. And, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm sure, I mean, I put, he came and did a story on me just before a, a show a couple years ago. God damn it. <laughs> um, and <clears throat> I put it on my, my bio sheet and, of course. and blog the shit out of it or whatever. Um, but I don't know. I think it still comes back to the work. Like, you could have this great review and if a curator or the owner of a gallery doesn't like the work, they're, they're just going to pass. So what does it do then? And, and it's not like the UT doesn't have any arts coverage anymore, because they certainly do. But what does it do to that process that, that Pincus leaves the paper or is, is, you know, they lay them off? Like, what does that do to the artist? Like, there was a huge outcry, right, this yeah. summer about, yeah. about him um, being laid off and... And this sense that that this was going to hamper the artistic community because we didn't have a, a full-time art critic with the credentials that he has and the club that he has and the sort of long view that he has. At this point, I feel like it's kind of the least of the worries. For and and that's not to say that it that that it, that, it, that it's not important to the general masses, but from as an artist standpoint, it it really doesn't matter. Um, what, what really matters to San Diego artists, like, who are working full-time, is that the people of the community start supporting local artists and understanding... Does that mean buying art? Yeah, that does mean, that means purchasing art. And even just becoming aware of, um, sort of the scene and the people that are working in the community. It seems like they're... There's less inherent value to artistic works here than other parts of the state. You mean like aesthetic merit or artistic merit? Um, or do you mean like financial value? All of the above. Okay. All of the cultural value, historic value. There's There seems to be a lack of thought about it, which it's not like they're saying this has no value. It's just something that's not in a lot of people's peripheral view because there is a lack of gallery space here and the lack of gallery space is directly efficient with with the amount of people who are paying money for art because for an art gallery to stay open, they got to sell art. That's what they're doing. You know, for, for artists to continue working, they need these galleries to sell this work so that they are, are getting a, a, a decent income to, to put back into the system and, and make more work. Um, but if it just is a slight imbalance in that um, finely tuned machine, then it all falls apart. It all just breaks to shit. It just one little piece is off. Now, in a lot of other cities, like particularly San Francisco, where I've shown a ton of work and I've actually had people think that I'm a San Francisco artist. Even other artists in San Francisco are like, hey, you wanna cruise over and check out this thing? Like, dude, I'm I live in San Diego. A thousand miles away or something. Yeah. You know, so uh, what keeps you here? 
I, I love it. Yeah. I love it. It doesn't, I can do my work anywhere in the world and go, you know, it doesn't matter. Because, like, your living room is full of stuff that has been made by San Diego artists. Uh-huh. Who are not in San Diego anymore? Yeah, yeah, almost every it's one kind of, of them. Kind of like huh? the like ghosts of San Diego. Yeah, past. and that's not to say that I almost I almost moved to LA when I um, worked for Black Market. They moved from San Diego to LA to be more in the the, the business, and uh, I I didn't want to work with them anymore, so I, I ended up staying. But I was really close to moving, and like I considered moving to San Francisco a couple times, but like this is home. Like this this weird. There's some. Uh, electromagnetic force that that holds that keeps me grounded here um, but I can go anywhere and I I always nowhere feels quite like the same sense of home hmm. and it's important to me um, I like being around my family um, half my family lives here uh, I have a lot my large extended family lives here and then another half lives back east in, okay. in Pittsburgh but yeah it's weird a lot of people have to move to to pay the bills you know, it's, it's expensive. It goes to back to that thing that we were talking about where to be creative, you have to be able to distinguish or to, to um, distance yourself from some of those concerns. Mm -hmm. To go I, back to that point of being three and trying to just be in tune with what's being created around you that's worth kind of paying attention to yeah. and ingesting. I'm, I'm, I'm very um, Thoreauian in that I, I have the ability to look at, say, currency and understand that it's not real that it doesn't matter like i know that it matters that we have to pay our bills and we have to have a roof overhead i know that there's that but i can actually put like a little um distance between me and it mm -hmm. and understand that there's not that much value in it and that there's other important um emotions and, and experiences that could be had that that are totally obsolete of those things what i was writing about for years is the opposite of that is people for, um, for whatever reason, for the mania of a housing market or for the American dream of having a home that is yours, that you own a piece of land, uh -huh. or for uh, this idea that you could, you know, that you could distance yourself from that, that value on currency by making a ton of money on your house. Um, it, they all gambled on that, on yeah. those things. And, and, you know, prices went down 40%. And we have this horrible housing crash. Right. But for a lot of people, that crash isn't horrible. And, and you know, there's people who waited it out. There's this whole psychology of it. But mm -hmm. for years, I was thinking about that stuff a lot. Because, and I still and I still am a total real estate nerd because yeah. of it. Um, because of writing about it for a few years. But that, to me, is a really key piece to understanding how you're going to live. Are you going to live for... Um, the pursuit of that accumulation of money or of a house or of whatever, uh -huh. or are you going to live for something else? It's that I made that other choice, which I've always kind of like, I've been that way from, from a young, as a young child, I knew that I had some other sort of goal to set that wasn't necessarily about like getting rich and famous or whatever, like, you know, like gaining a lot of things. Um, did you have a moment that you like made that decision, or do you think it just evolved? I don't know. I can't. It's hard. Like, maybe if I thought about it, I'm not sure. But I've always kind of um, defied normal societal roles. Like I've always kind of questioned everything. Like 
called bullshit on a lot of stuff. So I've always kind of been outside of that mainstream system. I've always, um, I love to ask questions about things and challenge people's opinions and, and, and learn from it myself. Like I, I, um, what I was going to say about the, the wealth and like trying to gain things. Um, and I say it a lot on the podcast and I say it a lot in conversations, but it's like really something that I stand for. Um, the work that I make, I, I gain a tremendous amount of wealth in it, um, in the process of doing it. And I feel like after I'm done with a piece and it goes to a gallery and sells or goes to a, a, it's commissioned by a collector or something that everything that happens after I'm done creating it is profit. Right. Mm -hmm. So like I've already been paid, even though no money has exchanged hands just in the creation of this new thing. Like the amount of wealth that I gain emotionally, mentally, even physically, uh, is an inherent value that's just as important to me as having a hundred dollar bill, right? Um, and then when I exchange the works for these currencies, I don't. I I take this like philosophical stance, which I know it's it's, it's silly, but it's and it's kind of childish. It's kind of this three year old thing. But um, I, I pretend as though I'm not selling somebody a work, but rather people are donating me some of their currency so that I may continue to make new things. And I'm just giving them the painting. So I'm not even selling the painting per se. They're supporting your future work. They're just donating some money. And I, in return, I'm saying, thank you. Here's a painting for you. Yeah. You know, in That's really interesting because I think a lot of people envy would envy that. But they would also... Like I've, I've heard about this idea of pricing and I, I mean, I'm not, a, I don't make visual art really. I make a glued piece of paper together and like give birthday cards to my friends. That's about it. Um, I support it. So, so I, I would just be at a complete loss if I ever made something and tried to, I mean, for whatever reason that this happened where I would be like putting something in a gallery, like how much do you charge, you know? And I've had people say that you break it down by how many hours did it take you to make it? And like, how much do you want to be paid an hour to be an artist? And that just sounds like you're really having a, you know, yeah. some sort of complicated math problem that isn't actually legitimate because right. there's so much more that goes into, like, how do you calculate the, the, um, the feeling that you put into something? And is that something that can be measured in dollars. I think. Well, that's why, it, like I said, I'm already paid. Before I'm even done with the piece, I'm already paid. So anything else is, is all an extra, an added bonus. So whatever comes is is profit. It doesn't, like, it doesn't matter. There's, but see, there's a difference between maybe me and some other people where some artists have these, like, um, attachments to the pieces once they're done. Like, they're these, like, personal like diary entries that yeah. they don't want anybody else to sort of read and then they don't want them to go anywhere which is very um contradictory to being a full-time working artist right. if you want to continue working and doing you gotta things. get some work out of the door you gotta go sell that shit yeah. so and and i think the way that i look at it is really helpful in that aspect because once i'm done with a piece i have very little attachment to it at all it can go wherever it wants and and to be honest like a lot of times like I my the way my pricing has gone, I started at selling pieces for like twenty bucks and have over ten plus years have worked up to selling things in the thousands of dollars. 
So it's been a really gradual scale all the way up that like, okay, that's sold for this. Now I can go up to this next step. Now I can go up to this next step and so on and so on. And, yeah. and it's another one of those gradual, like normal processes that will take place on its own. How many hours do you think you've spent painting? More than 10,000. Way more. Probably. I've been doing art full time for almost nine years without a, another regular job. And I work easily. I work every day during the day and at night. I pretty much only stop to like watch films. But even then I watch films and I just listen to films. Yeah. And I paint while I watch them. What kind of films? Um, I'm really a, a documentary guy, okay. mostly. I, I watch almost every documentary that's available on Netflix Instant View, you know? Yeah. Um, I like I like true stories mostly. I don't watch a lot of um, theatrical films. Are all like, of the figures in your paintings true people, like real people? Yeah, the most most of the real straightforward portraiture um, are actual people that are like referenced from. I have a collection of turn of the century photographs, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Like I collect them whenever I see something, I'll just grab it. Turn of last century, I'm imagining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's all like Y two K people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're totally strange looking. <laughs> wear these weird clothes. No, uh, you know, eighteen hundreds into like like yeah. eighteen ninety into like nineteen twenty, nineteen thirty. Hmm. Like I have some strange connection to that time period, and I tell people a lot. Like I'll be looking at like pages and pages of pictures, and one will stand out. Like, it's almost as if, like, all the other ones are kind of grayed out, and then one is shining really bright, and it's like, paint me. Yeah. Like, a te like, what it is is that I find these people who have these emotion in their face or their body language that resonates some sort of emotion that I feel and that I, I feel tells um, my own personal story. Like, I relate to them on some strange yeah. level that I don't quite know how to define or comp even comprehend. Um, and then I, their story turns into mine and then they kind of turn into a part of me because of working, looking at them and looking at them and looking at them and painting their image and, you know, understanding their likeness and then turning it. When I, when I make people, when I paint portraits of people, it's almost as if they like transport into this new world mm. in that like they look like my people, you know, like you could tell. Like I like, could when, recognize it like, oh, my Maxwell painted that. Right. Yeah. And so like it's almost like they become like mine a little bit, even though I know that they were these real people, but they they did that shift. It's like um, like the aha video mm -hmm. when he shifts from the real life into the the drawings like on something different like a different dimension or something so i kind of look at it like that but it, in the in the end it's really these people are telling a story that i relate to i was i've always wondered about that from the work of yours that i've seen because the especially in the eyes of the people that you paint mm -hmm. there is like an, an incredible i don't know soul or or emotion or something that i've that i've always wondered if if that is from the reference or if that's from you or if you think it's a combination it's probably both yeah. because like there's probably something in the look that they have in the reference material that like helps me say that's the one like something 
there's some sort of connection and it's almost like it's almost like uh geometrical like mm. there's something aesthetic that draws me in first and then like my mind perceives this whole story yeah you know and there's something about like that time period where people are like working to survive and we're kind of tough and like resilient and i think um I have some sort of attraction to that too, or some sort of romantic idea of, of that. So, I mean, that probably draws me in to a certain extent too, but that's not to say that once I start doing these portraits, like sometimes if I'm doing a portrait of somebody who everybody knows who they are, then it's a little more static and it's like, this has to be this person, mm. you know, it has to be exact because people know what people look like, especially like people who commission me to paint portraits of their kids or like, yeah. their grandparents or something it's like all right you know exactly what these people look like or people who want me to paint their portrait it's like you know exactly what you look like yeah i can't mess up but with a lot of these like random people who aren't like famous people who are just like working class uh who just happen to get their photo taken in the 1800s i can sort of have a little artistic leeway to you know not be so strict with a line like I can get loose, and if I don't like a little something, I can change it. So there, I have that ability to get loose. And then sometimes I'll just, like, create random abstract figurative works as well. Kind of just imagine a person. Yeah. like Because, I, you know, I came up doing, like, a lot of, like, like comic strip cartoon sort of things. Like, as a kid, like, that's what I thought I was going to do. Yeah. Kind of. was, uh, like, comic strip. Like, because I love the Sunday comics. So I would draw those all the time and do those sorts of things. And... What was your favorite one? Oh shit! Um, probably Calvin and Hobbes. Okay. But I liked a, I liked a lot of them, and it was really weird because I was thinking back on it recently because I was thinking I was talking about this, and as a kid, I sort of got some of the adult humor. I think mm -hmm. like I felt a little like, like I got some of the yeah I got some of the jokes that probably went over a lot of other like young kids' heads, <laughs> but they were interested enough in the. The drawings and the the figurative works and like the goofiness of it yeah i like i would even read those like grandma ones you know that were like they look like soap operas in comic strips yeah the like really like really like straight line not uh -huh. how much color yeah 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 so i was i was into all that stuff but uh let's talk about you now that we sure. ran my my mouth for too long um I, I want to talk about uh, the performance, since we were talking about MCASD, the performance at La Jolla hmm. with the tree ring. Yeah. Is it tree ring or the tree ring? The tree ring. The tree ring. I didn't want to We've up. been in, a, in a, an interesting progression uh -huh. because Joel, who is the mastermind of the band, who uh -huh. is you know, singer and songwriter and, and guitarist and uh, now organist, um, we were Joel P. West. And then uh, we were right. Joel P. West in the tree ring, and now we're just the tree ring. So okay, it's kind good. of this evolution. Okay, good. Um, that uh, that show is fucking amazing. Thank you. And in a way that, and I, I actually I talked to Seth about this was that I don't really like going to concerts. Um, I don't I don't really like people that much. <laughs> Hence, you live in Crest. <laughs> right, I'm sort of isolated up yeah. here on my mountaintop yeah. um, oasis. Uh, like I don't like the experience of. I love live music. Yeah. I love hearing it, and I even like being able to see it happen, but I'm so utterly distracted by the knuckleheads that surround me 
that I have, I, I unfortunately become more focused on the negative aspect of it and not enough on the positive, which is my own personal whatever. I think it's a big deal in San Diego, though. We can talk about that in a second okay. if you want. But at this show in particular uh, that you guys did in the theater, the movie theater room over there, uh, is there does that have a name? It's Jacob's? Sherwood, Sherwood Auditorium, I think. They, uh, you guys did like a really interactive sort of thing that uh, I actually have footage of it. So I, I, did, I got a little camera action. So I'll put that on the, I do a little blog for each episode. Yeah, so I'll put that. that up there. Everybody, all of a sudden, everybody started throwing paper airplanes. Yeah. What actually, how did it start? I think it was the key ring. Everyone started shaking their keys first. I, yeah. Um, you know, a lot of that. So Wes Bruce made that. Um, that changing. Yeah, let's uh, let's let's give him a shout out too. Yeah. It was a, it was also an interactive like art performance. Yeah, as were... well as a musical performance and then crowd participation action. There was um, there was that that changing uh, set design that were pieces uh -huh. of wood where people were, uh, and this was this was Wes Wes's um, uh, project was getting all these people to like hammer pieces of wood together that were painted and and throughout the show they were changed from being painted warm colors from like reds and oranges and stuff to being painted blue and green or maybe that was the opposite direction but at any rate it was yeah, one of those yeah. you know and um and what's really fun for me in this band is that even when it gets to the night of the show or to like when we're gonna do like this just happened we filmed a, a video and I didn't have any I was like trying to get it out of Joel for a while. Some of the concepts that we were uh -huh. going to do, you know, <laughs> yeah. and it even shows up to me. Like I'm surprised by it, Yeah. which is, I mean, which is totally amazing. Yeah. It's like so fun. To it's do. like doing an improv show. Yeah. Right? It's like, I'm in the middle of this thing and like suddenly I'm getting hit in the knee by a paper airplane. <laughs> you know? There was, I would say at least 500 paper. Do you know how many it, there were? I don't know how many there at were. At least but 500 like, yeah. flying around the auditorium for an entire up. song. They were folded up pieces of music. Oh um, really? Which is really cool. I I I didn't know that. It was um, dark. Couldn't see them. Yeah, exactly. You could, and if you, and you'd have to unfold it to even see it. But and they all ended up back on the stage. They started were thrown around, started. and they eventually all got back to the to the front of the stage. Yeah, I think um, we have a great time playing when. And the music was great. Let's well, let's thanks. make sure that. that gets out there. <laughs> um, I, I noticed you. Um, I'm trying to remember back to the thing. I think I, I said something to Crystal about you, like during that set. Do you feel like you go into kind of like a trance? Yeah, I um, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, actually, because like we were talking about being three and like do your parents instill a creative process? I don't know if they did, but I also only very recently realized that like that I feel like violin is like another language. Like when I'm playing, I'm. I'm able to like communicate with other people in my band or like whoever else I'm playing music uh -huh. with and I'm communicating something, but I don't know. This sounds totally crazy. I don't know what it is that I'm saying. Like Joel writes beautiful poetry and puts it to music and these songs are steeped in these ideas. And I actually haven't asked him about this. If he, if he has this same feeling, but like musically, I, I don't know. Like, I'm expressing something, too, but I just don't know what it is. Yeah. Like, I'm not always... Uh, most of the time I know, oh, this lyric is coming up or something, you know? But I'm not always taking that lyric and literally attaching that to the notes and the, the emotion that's coming out of my yeah. instrument. But I don't know what is coming out of my instrument. 
do you feel like you sort of get into a zone? Yeah. Like I relate, like I try to play the guitar, which I think uh, a lot of uh, creative types always want to be involved in other sort of creative aspects totally. of life, um, which I'm really very poor at it. But I could trick somebody who doesn't know how to play guitar to make them think that I know how to play guitar. That's like But me. somebody who knows how to play guitar and sees me play guitar is like, mm. um, but occasionally, like I'll just like in between waiting paint to dry, I'll just grab the guitar and just start strumming around and play the few chords that I know, and then get into like a strange rhythm that it's almost like like I related to like standing on the like the bank of like a fast moving river mm -hmm. like you're over there like sticking your big toe in the thing and then all of a sudden you fall in and you just go yeah. off on some path that seems um like really natural and you like and it's in those moments that it seems at least for me as a as a super ultra novice that all of a sudden I find these new little patterns and these new words and i'd look at it the same way like a language and i feel like i'm like two and no like three words mm -hmm. and all of a sudden i put three of those words together and made this new word but my my version of the language is really really minimal but it but it's the same process no matter where you are in that development i uh -huh. think that like for a long time uh like when you play violin you you shake your hand and you vibrate mm -hmm. it's called vibrato Right. Um, you know, it's the same thing like in an opera singer's voice, there's that vibrato. And that's When you do that, are you moving on the string? Or are you just like yeah. vibrating? Are you not actually like you're more moving your fin your hand and your fingers and not like say like a slide? Yeah, you're not sliding. Yeah. Um, but like on a guitar, you know, there's frets. Yeah. So you're supposed to put your finger on this fret and this fret and this fret. Well in violin there's no frets. Yeah. So and you know how sometimes if you hit a chord on a guitar and it's like not quite on the right fret. It sounds weird. Mm -hmm. That that's like that instance because you're shortening the string with wherever you're going to put your finger on, right? So how do you keep track of where you're at? On so the you just have to board? learn it. Yeah. And when you're little, they put these little white tapes um, on your thing, like a fretboard, yeah, basically. Yeah. And you learn it, but but then if you're playing in a different key or something, your finger might be in a different place, and you just kind of have to learn it and feel it. Which when you buy a new instrument takes a little bit to get used to because even a millimeter right. difference is going to change whether you're able to play in tune or something. Uh -huh. Is it the same difficulty as like those guys that do the stand-up bass that don't have the, um, the frets? I don't know about the level of difficulty, but it's the same. It's basically the same instrument as the stand-up bass, right? It's just smaller. Yeah. So the nice thing for me, um, and I have like an extremely small pinky, it's uh -huh. like way too short. The nice thing for me is that my fingers don't have to be that far spread apart like bassists do. They yeah. have to be like all over the place. And you do... Um, I play an acoustic violin. Okay. Um, and that that sort of change from vibrato to like a few... Maybe 10 years ago I started hearing um, more fiddle music, like more bluegrassy fiddle music. Yeah. And they, a lot of times, well, it was a lot of times these like old guys, you know, who didn't know what they were doing. So they don't always play in tune, but, and they also have something that my violin teacher used to call pancake hand, where like their hands are like, not like rounded and like uh -huh. sort of classical, but they're like almost holding the violin up with the palm of their hand. Yeah. Um, and they, a lot of times these fiddlers will play a lot straighter. So that instead of the the note being sort of soft and vib vibrated, um, like a classical music piece yeah. might be. And I started trying to experiment 
with taking that, and I'm certainly not the only person to do this or the first, um, but trying to experiment taking that that style, that straight style, and putting it in sort of this the more folkier or like the kind of music that I play now, you know, mm -hmm. the sort of it's even sometimes sounds classical, but I was trying to play straighter. Yeah. Um, and like Bach music is all played, the whole Baroque period is all played straight like that. Mm -hmm. And then later this vibrato comes in and now that's what we think a violin is supposed to sound yeah, like right. this, like, ah, you know, uh -huh. but trying to just, just for like the sake of doing it. And because I liked the straight tone, trying to experiment with that. It, um, and that to me feels like learning a new word. Right. So even if I'm not, even if I like know where all the notes are and I, I'm not very technically proficient, but can generally play, it's still to try to play in a different tone and direct my sort of energy or passion that way mm -hmm. can still feel like, oh, I'm playing two notes together or, oh, I'm playing this straight tone in that development. So right. I think that kind of aha can happen. Let's, uh, it looks like we're running out of time. You, uh. You gotta run, huh? Right at the twelve twenty mark. It's a we can go for it. We can go for a little bit. Okay. Um let's see. Should we uh try to promote some of your stuff and get Ooh. some of your promo stuff out there before sure. um well I was gonna mention a song that you, right there real quick. Um yeah. if I can remember who did the song. There was a um the Peter Bjorn uh what is it? Uh I'm gonna fuck this up. I'm not gonna be able to remember the name, so we'll just skip it. Um I'll send you a link to the song that I want you to hear. That, yeah. That you just reminded me of just now, but I can't remember what it is offhand. Um, but yeah, let's promote some of your stuff where people can see um, or read some of your reviews or see some of your work that you do. We're trying to tell all of our art stories um, in a in sort of a seamless blog on Voice of San Diego, which is called Behind the Scene. Um, and that's it, just voiceofsandiego.org forward slash arts. Okay. And what about um, The Tree Ring? The Tree Ring, I think our website is treeringmusic.com. Google it, motherfuckers. You can Google you can that. Find it. Yeah. You can find that that way. And uh, you guys got any um, tour plans or um, We're actually releasing up? a record, um, a full length that we've just finished, uh, that we did in the fall, and that's called Generous Shadows. And our release for that is at the San Diego Women's Club on February 12th. Nice. And do you want to say your Twitter? <laughs> all of the above, right? Yeah, Twitter, you might as well get it all out there. Twitter right? is um, Kelly R. Bennett, K-E-L-L-Y-R-B-E-N-N-E-T-T. -T. And I said my blog. Mm -hmm. I said my band. That's it, I think. Okay, good. We, I think, should we try to get um, 10 minutes of uh, Mexico verse? We had talked yes, about TJ yeah. and I the San Diego yes. artists. Yes, let's do it. You had, when when this whole Pincus thing was blowing up, not the original blow up, which was the forum in La Jolla, but um, later when Catherine Sweetman wrote a post on the UT, UT website that said, we hate the Union Tribune, what was I thinking, you know, agreeing to do this blog, I'm using this first post to be my last post, uh -huh. kind of blowing, blowing out of there. Um, we had had a conversation on my blog about what is, you know, this basically saying this, this conversation is still happening. Um, and this is still sort of attracting some attention. What does everybody kind of think about local arts coverage? Um, for me, what my sort of beef is and what is kind of like an ongoing, um, like inside joke among a lot of my San Diego artist friends is that, 
um, if it's not about Tijuana art, then it's not really talked about. Like there isn't a lot of focus on San Diego art. And um, in what venues do you mean? Like, do you mean in the Union Tribune? Or in do the you Union mean... Tribune, in these major uh, museums, in mm -hmm. like in the local museums, like there's a big focus on cross border stuff. on South yeah. American work. And I think I understand it. I could be totally wrong, but um, from my perspective, which is really interesting, because um, on what will be a podcast that will already be up by the time this one goes up. Um, I just spoke with the guys, uh, with Bob and Anna from the Roots Factory, and they're both Chicano. And we were talking about um, culture, right? And he, uh, Bob was telling me, he's like, you're not white. Because we were having a discussion about race. And he was like, you know, your, your ancestors are from a country. You're not just white. You know, whereas when we look at uh, Mexican culture, it's this long indigenous culture of of, of really integrated, um, or not integrated, but, uh, you know, a culture that has uh, rehashed itself over and over again and has kept a core set of values. Where, like, me telling him that I'm white is not saying, oh, I'm um, Scottish, Irish, with uh, some Polish, but like I'm not attaching myself to these cultures from which I came from. Yeah. Now I'm just like this American white, you know, because it's just like how our society has brought us up. So when we're when we're looking at, at artists, particularly I think from uh, from like a journalistic standpoint, we really want to attach a culture to it because it look it gives it this perspective of being um, more important or of mm -hmm. higher value. But if we look at United States artists, we could say percentage-wise, it's straight white males, like heavily dominated, typically, if you uh, an, a, an overall census. Yeah. So if we're looking at straight white males, it looks it looks almost cultureless, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's a like a diluted like, well, where do you come from? I don't know where you come from. I don't know how to put you into this classification. I don't know how to um, write the bio. I don't know how to write the press release. Or I don't know, uh, like, there's nothing in your story that's compelling enough to put in the front other than, like, your background or you whatever. Didn't, you so. didn't hurdle, have any hurdles to jump <laughs> over. <laughs> yeah. Right? So with that, I think it's it's much more romantic for writers and journalists to tell these stories mm -hmm. of, like, this indigenous class of people who have this, like, deep ingrained heritage that comes through in these, these uber... Um, Mexican works, right, that yeah. are coming out of the border areas. That's interesting. So for me, as typical, stereotypical point of view, white guy, straight white male, it's like, what, my, my story isn't interesting enough, even though I've, I've had all sorts of obstacles and things that I've had, like trials and tribulations. And I have ingrained cultural heritage that has been passed along hmm. that maybe doesn't it does show in my work if you take the time to look and find out it does actually show through in my work but um it's not it's not as easily um defined you have to mm -hmm. you have to know my personality where like we have all these history books that say oh here's this indigenous mexican culture here's these types of works that they make and these are these things that they're still making so there's like a guideline and there's almost a bit of activist, activism too, right? Yeah, in of course, and it's that romanticism. That like, that like this gallery or this museum or this, you know, journalist, like if I write a story about somebody that I meet in TJ and like promote their work, basically, maybe I give them a leg up to 
then be shown in the gallery here, mm -hmm. and I'm like, mm -hmm. I somehow yeah. have a piece of this, like, Greg Stritch's story. Which is know? funny, because me even saying this makes it sound as though, like, I'm trying like I'm trying to be, like, the white victim. You know, like, <laughs> oh, look at all the, like, like people who have um, issues with, uh, what was that program called to get minorities into colleges? And, uh, affirmative action. Affirmative action, right? Like, I sound like an anti, like, oh, woe is me. Like, <laughs> yeah. how come they get all these perks? But that's not what I'm saying. Yeah. Totally. I think it's I think it's a case where the pendulum has swung to this point of activism, to this like sort of macro view of we are this border region. And isn't that weird, like with the galleries that like maybe they have or like a writer's like, well look what I'm doing for this person. Like you don't really need that much help. You're fine as, as you are. You live in Hillcrest. Look what I'm doing, like whatever. a personal like like feel good story because people like to do those things mm -hmm. too, right? Like if you're like. I, if I give a bum a dollar or, like, buy him a sandwich, like, I feel good about myself. And yet, I think there's some importance, some major importance to understanding San Diego as part of uh, the, this jargony term that I hate, this mega region that is San Diego, Tijuana, and, mm -hmm. like, border is a huge part of our yeah, landscape. Yeah, totally. It totally makes sense to be, uh, to be but a, I, a part of the story. But I thought your comment in that whole in that whole conversation, which was after Seth had actually taken Pincus's, um, like two years or something of Pincus's columns and had, and, and reviews and had, you know, counted how many he'd gone to Mexico for or whatever. Uh -huh. Your comment had been, well, that's not really the point. Cause that's the, we all, a bunch of us sort of think that there is too much focus on Mexico, yeah. too much focus on this sort of mega region and not enough focus on San Diego. Yeah. Specifically, which I hadn't heard. And, it, yet, was, and so. it was because of that lack of culture that I think is the is the main focus. Or it's not even the lack of culture; it's the idea of of, of a, a historically written culture. And maybe that's San Diego, easily attachable. And maybe San Diego, in trying to distinguish itself from LA or something, is trying to like lay claim to that border region mm -hmm. stuff. You know, yeah, like this, no, this we're, is our little we're closer. We're closer to the border. You know, we're yeah. we're the ones who really know TJ and who's And really there. important that I, I don't want to diminish the work that's coming out of there. No, like, it's awesome. The people that are doing stuff are, are, are making great works and doing the things that are important and doing it for the right reasons and, and passing on those things. But it's a it's a very um, tilted slant towards mm -hmm. one story than the other. That's really interesting. At least from perspective, I could be totally wrong. Like I don't. What was the the uh, number count? Was that I forget. But was but it, I think it was pretty. I think in his analysis, the point, the overall point was, um, Seth's in Seth's opinion, Bob Pincus's work had favored certain institutions and and hadn't been um in the places that Seth thought deserved some more attention. And uh, one of those was was Mexico. Yeah. So. And see in you know, I, I know Seth's been here a long time, but I've been in the art world for San Diego art world for ten plus years. And so I've heard the stories. I've read every reader in City Beat and and UT and uh what was the other one that was out for a while? There's another like a City Beat type magazine. Fahrenheit. Okay. Fahrenheit that came out. Like I know all the stories that have happened, and from a personal perspective, it, it definitely seemed a lot more one-sided than than even half and half of, of stories. Like hmm. it was just easier to promote those things, I guess. Well, I'm very new to the scene, but hopefully, we can be finding some. I things. think it's changing. I think this summer was a big shift, a big sort of cultural shift in showing, particularly the people who have money to buy art that there is this new class of art that's coming up that has been 
coming up for 20 years. But I think the people who have the money to buy art in San Diego are still thinking that contemporary art is from 1981 to 1985, you know, or, you know, whatever, like, it's not the new work that's being made. They want, they want to be the collectors of the new Picassos or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. They want to have that new, like, art star stuff that is, is no longer, it's not that relevant anymore. That stuff is now for the museums to be collecting and showing to large groups of people and moving from institution to institution and sharing as a historical value. Um, but what these people who like La Hoyans and, and people who have the money to start supporting local art and young artists who are coming up, mm -hmm. what they're, what they're going to be able to do is make these new art stars and these new people that can go into these institutions. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for them to, to shift focus. A lot of them, I, and then, like I talk about these people as if I know that there's this large group of a hundred people who are doing who, like, these things, but it's totally helps. like it's like they are running the world, whoever they are. Yeah, powers uh, of me. Yeah, yeah, you know. It, it, but it seems like if if we can get those people looking at the uh, the young people who are making work now and the people who are out there busting their ass every day and aren't the aren't the people who have a studio full of assistants that are making all the work for them, which not there's anything wrong with that, but those people are are now in that next stage. You know, let them go into the museums and, and those sorts of things. So, um, very interesting. I think we can make a shift that way. But the what I what a, what a, the point was is that with all this extra attention to the museum and how well the Viva show was mm -hmm. was um, received, even with all the negativity around the street work, it opened up enough people's eyes to see. Look at all this other stuff that's going on that we really have no idea about, all which those is art important. And things, yeah. I think people in San Diego need to understand that even not just local art, which is like the first baby step to just supporting some local stuff, but you should also be, if you're interested in art, you should be looking at what's happening regionally, mm -hmm. uh, you know, around the state and then around the country and then even around the world. Cause there's a lot of cool stuff and it's really easily attainable now with the internet. Like before I used to have to hunt to see new work and now it's so easy. You can, you can see every show that's available and there's a wealth of, of works that are out there. And what that does when you start appreciating these things that are happening elsewhere, you start to notice, hey, these same things are happening in my own city mm -hmm. and I can help support those as well. Right. So cool. I think on that note, uh, we're, we got an hour, an hour, 10, Perfect. we got 1233 yeah. and you got a meeting at one. Be okay. Perfect timing. Oh. You're 25 minutes. You'll be there right on time. Perfect. All right. Thank you very much for doing yeah. the show. I appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah.
thousand